Luke chapter 22, verses 1 through 6. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. This is the inspired and inerrant and infallible and eternal word of God for us this morning. Um, Beloved, as I said, we now this morning are opening up chapter 22 of Luke's gospel, which uh, really speaks in detail about the final day of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. Chapter 22 will end just on the cusp of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so we will see Jesus and the disciples celebrating the Passover, and we will see his betrayal, and we will see and read of his trial. Um, All of this is what Luke includes in chapter 22. It's really an amazing chapter. As I spent time on study leave earlier in May, uh, I was outlining the rest of the book of Luke, so I had some ideas to when we would end the sermon series. And as I was looking at chapter 22, every section within this chapter I found to be uh, uniquely fascinating. And uh, as I said, I'm eager to preach through it. There's so much here in this chapter, so much meat, I think, that Luke gives us here. Uh, So much for us to chew on and to engage with, and so much here that is going to challenge us, and as I pray often, I pray the Holy Spirit would use the Word of God to challenge us uh, and apply these truths to our hearts. But this morning, let me just begin with a brief outline of where we have been. If you have not been worshiping with us very long, or maybe today uh, is your first time worshiping with you, let me just catch you up. Uh, For part of Luke chapter 19 and all of Luke chapter 20, Luke has been describing for us the last week of Jesus' earthly life, following Jesus and the the disciples as he ministered in the temple and engaged with the various sects of the religious leaders of Israel. Uh, the, the, The last week of Christ's earthly life began with his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on what we call today Palm Sunday. The following day, Jesus went to the temple and cleansed it by running out the money changers and the vendors. Then the day after that, he returned to the temple and sat down and began to preach and teach the gospel of the kingdom of God. And as he has been doing that day after day, leading up to Thursday of Holy Week, we have seen various groups of religious leaders of Israel coming to challenge Jesus. And we are now uh, on Thursday of Holy Week, the day of the Passover celebration. And if we would read ahead to verse 7 of chapter 22, we'll see that Luke will describe in detail what this final day entailed for Jesus and his 12 disciples. But in our text this morning, Luke actually goes back a little bit. Some commentators, and I don't know how they figured this out, but they figured it out. I think they based it on when the feast Uh, when the Passover celebration happens. Some commentators think that Luke is going backwards a little bit to 
Tuesday of Holy Week, and he gives us a few insights into events which were happening behind the scenes, if you will. And, and I thought this might be a good opportunity to remind us of something that I've not mentioned for a while about the nature of Luke's gospel. It's important to remember Luke's goal, he stated this in chapter 1, is to give an orderly account of the events of Christ's earthly ministry. And orderly for Luke does not necessarily mean a chronological order. Orderly for Luke means a logical order. So what Luke will often do is rearrange the timeline, right, to group events or group uh, different teachings of Jesus together in a way that makes logical sense. So he will rearrange things according to themes. And in this logical telling of these events of the last week of Jesus Christ, what he does first is focuses on Jesus and his teaching in the temple. Really, we're seeing the last week of Jesus Christ in verses nine, or chapters 19 uh, through 21 from the perspective of Jesus and his ministry in the temple leading up to the Last Supper. But today, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 22, he goes back a little bit and he begins to tell us, as I said before, of events which are happening behind the scenes. Really, he begins to tell us of the events which lead up to the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus. And in our text today, what exactly is Luke showing us? He is showing us, as the sermon title notes, a great conspiracy. A great conspiracy which sees three enemies of Jesus Christ converge together to accomplish this betrayal, arrest, and death of our Lord. So we will look at this text today by examining these three groups of enemies individually. Hopefully, we'll see how it is that they were all able to come together in this great conspiracy to murder the very Son of God. So the first enemy, Luke notes, the chief priests and the scribes. These, uh, when he notes the chief priests and the scribes, we must believe that these men stand to represent all of the religious leaders of Israel who hated Jesus and desired to put him to death. But these enemies... They should come as no surprise to us that Luke mentions them first, because throughout our study in the Gospel of Luke, we have seen the desires of the religious leaders of Israel, uh, their desires to ensnare Jesus, and we've seen that desire pop up often. Last week when we were back in Pennsylvania, I had the privilege of preaching at the church where I did my pastoral internship, and I preached on Luke 5 very early on in Jesus' ministry. And already in Luke 5, you see the Pharisees coming to Jesus, seeking to ensnare him. These so-called shepherds of Israel, we know that they hated Jesus. They were immensely jealous of Jesus. They were thoroughly disturbed and enraged at the claims of Jesus. They longed to rid the world of Jesus. And given that this was the week of the Passover, their desire at this time in Luke's gospel, their desire to get rid of Jesus was probably all the more strong. Because the reality is, the week of Passover was, in those days, a very volatile time for the nation of Israel. Jews were gathered in the holy city of Jerusalem. Uh, Jews came from all over the Roman Empire. 
to celebrate the Feast of Passover. And because of that fact, there was always a risk during the Passover celebration that some sort of mass rebellion or uprising uh, would occur as Jews were constantly seeking a way out of the Roman occupation and oppression of the nation of Israel. And here was Jesus, a man who many of the Jews did consider to be the Messiah, a man who many believed would be the one who would come and rescue the nation of Israel from the hands of their political oppressors. And of course, we can say Jesus is the Messiah, the one who came to deliver his people. He would do it, we know, not through military might, but rather through his death and resurrection. He would rescue the covenant people of God from enemies even greater than Rome. But that is not what the Jews in those days, understood the work of the Messiah to be. They expected the Messiah to be a great military leader who would enter the city of Jerusalem, lead a rebellion or a coup, overthrow Rome, and reestablish the glory of the nation of Israel on earth. The religious leaders of Israel, who were very eager to avoid any attempt at overthrowing the Roman Empire and outright war with Rome, knew that having this messianic figure, Jesus, in the city of Jerusalem during the feast of the Passover would greatly increase the risk of this sort of rebellion happening. The Jews would believe, here's our military leader. They feared that they would rise up en masse and attack Rome. So I think it's safe to say that during this holy week, they had a, a dire sense of urgency to deal with the problem of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. Now we've seen this desire expressed already in Luke's account of the final week of the life of Jesus. Luke 19, verse 47, Luke writes that the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. Luke chapter 20, verse 19, Luke says... The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus that very hour because they perceived that he had told the parable of the wicked tenants against them, but they feared the people. So we have these enemies of Christ, these religious leaders of Israel, with a strong desire and urge to arrest and kill Jesus. But did you catch the problem there? Do you see why they're not doing it? Luke notes it in each of the verses I just quoted. Chapter 19, the people were hanging on every word of Jesus. Chapter 20, Luke says the religious leaders feared the people. The problem, what stopped the religious leaders of Israel from seizing Jesus, arresting him, and putting him to death was the crowds. It was the people of Israel. Jesus at that point was immensely popular with the people. And the chief priests and the scribes feared that if they made a move against him, especially a public move, which really was their only option, basically to come and arrest him while he was teaching in the temple, they feared that the crowds would rise up and turn on them. Mark notes in his gospel, chapter 14, verse 2, the religious leaders feared the people would outright riot if they made their move against Jesus. And so up until this point, they were unable to do anything with Christ. But then, the perfect opportunity presented itself. And that opportunity comes through the second 
the enemies of Jesus Christ who are part of this great conspiracy, Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot is the second enemy of Christ that, that Luke mentions here. He tells us in verse 4 that Judas went away. That is, he went away from the presence of Jesus and the other apostles, and he conferred, he conspired with the chief priests and officers how he might betray Jesus to them. And if you look at verse 6, Judas does indeed give the religious leaders of Israel the very solution to their problem. He consented and sought an opportunity to betray Jesus to them in the absence of a crowd. Judas, beloved, was their inside man. He was their mole, in a sense. And as we read this passage this morning, probably many of us are at least remotely curious as to why Judas, one of the twelve apostles, would become an enemy of Christ. Why would he betray his own master and Lord? Luke tells us why he did it. He gives us two reasons why in our text this morning. First, Judas did it for the money. Look at verse 5. The religious leaders were glad and agreed to give him money. Judas betrayed our Lord and Savior, brothers and sisters, for cash. For 30 pieces of silver, as Matthew tells us in his gospel. And Matthew gives us the distinct impression, when you read his gospel account of this, that the idea of betraying Jesus for money was Judas's idea. It was his scheme, his invention. Do you understand this? Judas was a lover of money. He was a covetous man, beloved. Remember what Jesus preached and Judas was there to hear it? You cannot love money and love God. You cannot have two masters. You cannot serve mammon and God. Judas embodies that truth. We have to understand, this was Judas betraying Christ for 30 pieces of silver. This was not a one-off event. This selling Jesus out for 30 silver coins did not happen in a vacuum. Judas has a history of covetousness, of loving money. John notes in his gospel that when Mary of Bethany anointed the feet of Jesus with that expensive perfume, it was Judas who objected the loudest. And John chapter 12, verse 5, John writes that Judas says, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And listen to what John says immediately after that. John says, he said this, Judas said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas was a lover of money. He was covetous, beloved. And the question I have for you this morning is, do you still believe Do you still believe that you can love your material possessions and wealth and Jesus Christ? Do any of you still believe that the sin of covetousness, which leads to thievery, is a small sin? Look to Judas Iscariot if you believe that and take warning. If you still believe you can love mammon and serve God, if you still believe your covetousness, your envy, your desire for more and more worldly riches is a fairly harmless sin, then know this. You are on a road 
which if you do not repent, will ultimately end with you betraying the one who you claim is your Lord. And you might even do it for just a few silver coins. Judas betrayed Jesus, the greatest act of betrayal in all of human history, for money. He did it for an amount which, by today's standards, equals less than $500. The sin of covetousness took root in his heart. He was a lover of money. That's why he betrayed Christ. But there's another reason why. Judas betrayed Jesus Christ. And this second reason is noted in verse 3. And verse 3 brings into the picture the third enemy who enters into this great conspiracy, Satan. Luke tells us, verse 3, that Satan entered Judas. Satan entered Judas, who was one of the number of the twelve. Beloved, Judas betrayed Jesus Christ because, at least one of the reasons why, is because Satan himself possessed him. The ancient serpent, the great dragon, the liar, the greatest of all the fallen angels actually possessed Judas Iscariot. Now we have not heard from Satan for quite some time in Luke's Gospel. In fact, he has not appeared in Luke's Gospel since Luke chapter 4 and the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Now, of course, we've seen Jesus engaging with demons since then, but the devil himself, Satan himself, has not appeared in Luke's Gospel since the temptation of Christ. And when Jesus resisted the devil in the wilderness, Luke ended that account in chapter 4, verse 13, by saying, when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from Jesus until an opportune time. Beloved, now was the opportune time that Satan was waiting and watching for. You have to understand something here about the very nature of the Bible, about the very nature of redemptive history. And I listened to a sermon from Sinclair Ferguson this week on this text. And what he said in this sermon, I think, illustrates this point well. He said that if he could do it, he would have all of you circle Luke 22, verse 3 in a red pen and take that red pen and draw a line from 22, verse 3 through every page of your Bible the whole way back to Genesis 3, verse 15. Genesis 3, 15, that is the key verse to understanding so much brothers and sisters. It is the key, really, to understanding the Old Testament, the key to understanding the person, the work, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the key to understanding what Satan is doing right here in this moment. It is the verse which first declares the glorious truth of the gospel. When after Satan tempted man to sin and rebel against God, God pronounced a curse upon the serpent, upon the devil. And in that curse, Genesis 3.15, God promised that one day a particular offspring of the woman, one born of a woman, would come. And the serpent, Satan, God says in Genesis 3.15, would bruise his heel. But that offspring of the woman would crush his head. And ever since that pronouncement, what do you think Satan has been doing? He has been working to prevent 
the seed, the offspring of the woman, from ever being able to crush his head. I challenge you, when you read the Old Testament, read it through the lens of Genesis 3.15. If you do that, you will no doubt see how Satan was at work time and time again seeking to destroy the offspring of the woman. Satan sought to destroy the offspring of the woman right in the very next chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, with the murder of Abel by his brother Cain. And what did God do? He raised up another son, Seth. Satan sought to destroy the seed, the offspring of the woman in the days of Noah, but God preserved the offspring of the woman through Noah and his family. He he sought to destroy the offspring of the woman by using King Saul to destroy David. He sought to destroy the offspring of the woman by tempting David into grievous sin and rebellion against God. He sought to do it by leading the northern kingdom of Israel into rebellion and exile, and then the southern kingdom of Judah into rebellion and exile, captivity. But God preserved a remnant. He preserved the offspring of the woman. Satan sought to destroy the offspring of the woman in the days of Xerxes in Persia. When the decree went out to destroy all the Jews, God preserved the covenant people, the offspring of the woman, by raising up Queen Esther. Do you get the point I'm making? The entirety of the Old Testament is the true life story of the ancient serpent seeking to destroy the offspring of the woman so as to prevent rather, the coming of the offspring who would one day crush his head. And no doubt, Satan now knows that it is Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, who is the promised offspring, who has indeed come to deliver his death blow. And he wants nothing more than to stop that from happening. And here now, I think Satan truly believed it was the opportune time to act. So he possesses Judas. He leads Judas in a sense. In a sense, he leads him to betray Jesus Christ, the long-promised Messiah, resulting in Christ being handed over to the authorities and being put to death. But beloved, we need to marvel at the infinite wisdom and sovereignty of our God because while Satan believed I think he truly believed that in the, de- in the death of Jesus, it would be the end of that declaration that Jesus would crush his head. While he truly believed that in the death of Jesus, it was he who would ultimately crush the head of the offspring of the woman. In God's sovereign rule and control of all things, it was in the death and the resurrection of the glorious Son of God, Jesus Christ, that Satan's head would be crushed. Do you see how Satan is conspiring against Christ and ultimately under the sovereignty of God, he is serving God's ordained purpose in this? Satan's blow at Jesus Christ in the crucifixion, it was ultimately nothing more than a bruised heel. And while Jesus truly did suffer and truly did die on the cross in every sense of the word, that bloody cross was the God-ordained means through which Jesus would atone for the sins of his people, rise victoriously, conquer death, and crush the head of Satan. 
The ancient serpent, beloved, he may be crafty. He may be a powerful foe. He is no match for the power of the eternally wise, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. No great conspiracy, no matter how strong or how numerous the foes are, could ever thwart the plan and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Satan thought he was conspiring. He thought he could thwart God's plans. In the end, he served. He served the plan of God. And through his conspiracy and possession of Judas Iscariot, he actually worked out the very means through which his head was crushed. Well, let me end this morning, beloved, because one of the things that strikes me about this text is Judas Iscariot. I want us to end this morning by drawing our attention back to him. We really haven't heard much about Judas throughout Luke's gospel other than when Jesus was calling the 12 apostles. Luke makes a note that it would be Judas who betrays Jesus. But other than that, we've not really heard much about him. And so this is really, and we'll get a few more glimpses, one of the uh, more close looks at Judas that we have in, in the Gospel of Luke. Beloved, there's a disturbing trend. It arose very early on in the history of the church. And that trend is to view Judas with sympathetic eyes. We read passages like the one before us today. We read how Judas was possessed by Satan. And many people come to the conclusion that Judas here is an innocent victim. That somehow he was not a willing participant in this great conspiracy. Beloved, you need to banish those ideas from your minds. The Bible, it has no shred of sympathy for Judas Iscariot. He is not an innocent victim in anything here. The fact of the matter is, Satan did not make Judas do anything he did not already desire to do. Satan and Judas found a willing companion. He was seeking for an opportune time to attack Jesus. He found an opportune host to launch his attack in Judas Iscariot, the lover of money, the thief who stole from the treasury of Jesus and his disciples. The apostle, <laughs> the apostle Judas Iscariot, a man who held the highest office in the Christian church apart from the office of prophet, priest, and king, which Jesus himself holds. The apostle Judas Iscariot, who walked with Jesus every day, who heard him teach and preach, who ate with him, who fellowshiped with him, who even ministered in his name, he did not resist the devil. If he had, the devil would have fled. That's what James 4, verse 7 promises. Beloved, Judas was willing. He was a willing host for Satan. There's a reason it was Judas. And not Peter, not Matthew, not, not John, or any of the other 11. Judas was open to Satan. So we need to stop with sympathy for him. I want you to listen to what William Hendrickson had to say about Judas. And just chew it over. Think it through. He said, for many months, Judas has been living in Christ's immediate presence, have been eating, drinking, and traveling with him. 
He had noticed the strength in his master's voice when he stilled the storm, cursed the barren fig tree, rebuked those who devoured widows' houses. But Judas had also become aware of the tenderness of that same voice when Jesus pleaded with sinners, including Judas, to come to him and rest. He had listened to the Savior's marvelous discourses, to the decisive and authoritative answers he had given to the many questions that had been hurled at him sometimes with the intention of ensnaring him. Judas had watched the great physician in the act of tenderly restoring the handicap, bending down mercifully over the sick and healing them, and then even adding at times your faith has saved you. Yes, Judas had witnessed all this and much more. And then he decided to deliver his unsurpassably powerful, wise, and compassionate benefactor into the hands of cruel men for 30 pieces of silver. Beloved, he walked with Jesus. He ministered with Jesus. He fellowshiped with Jesus. And yet, do you see what happened with him? He did not repent. He never repented of his love of money, his greed, his covetousness, his theft. He kept back that quote-unquote small sin from God. He wasn't willing to confess and forsake it. He wasn't willing to do battle against it. He never struggled to fight it, to seek, to put it to death. And over time, because of that, his heart grew harder and harder to the point where he was willing to sell Jesus out and became a willing participant with Satan to destroy the Lord. Judas, beloved, is a prime example of one who refused to kill sin, so sin killed him. He is the prime example of a true apostate. One who was part of the fellowship of believers, even tasting of the gifts and the blessings of the Holy Spirit, but never truly repenting and receiving Jesus by faith. He is the prime example of what Hebrews 6 warns of when it says, For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. Beloved, you need to understand, Judas stands as a dire warning to everyone everyone who is part of the Christian church today. He's not a warning to those who claim to be unbelievers. He is a warning to you. He is a warning to me and to everyone who sits in the pews of a gospel preaching church every Sunday. Because the reality is, beloved, all of us, all of us can potentially become Judas Iscariot. I know you'd rather have pastors tell you that you can be David or Daniel or Abraham or whatever Bible hero you desire, but the reality is we are all a lot closer to being Judas Iscariot than any of those great men of faith. All of us, beloved, if we harbor sin in our hearts, if we are not truly repentant, if we think we can come to Jesus and yet say to him, let me just keep this little sin, Lord. I'm not ready to repent of it. I'm not ready to fight against it, Lord. Let me just keep this little sin. All of us, if we say that, are in danger 
of selling out our Lord Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver. Because that one little sin you don't want to repent of, that one little sin that you love too much to fight against, to seek to mortify, to seek to put it to death, that little sin, beloved, just like with Judas, will grow, and it will grow, and it will grow, and it will wear down your heart. It will harden your heart more and more. And if you continue in your unrepentance, and if you continue to foster and savor that sin, no matter how long you've been a member of a church, no matter how many times you've eaten of the sacrament, no matter how many times you volunteer or go to Bible study or prayer meeting or profess with your lips even that Jesus is Lord, if you do not repent, you will indeed betray the Lord Jesus Christ, hold Him up to contempt, and crucify once again the Son of God. Jesus will not have part of you, beloved. He will have all of you or He will have none of you. When we finish Luke... The next series I'm going to do is preach through the first three books, or I'm sorry, the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, the seven letters to the seven churches. And one of those churches, the very end, Jesus says, were that you were either hot or cold, but you are lukewarm. Because of that, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus will have all of you or none of you. Now understand, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about you being sinless. None of us can ever achieve that. Although, just because we can't achieve it doesn't mean we aren't commanded to pursue it. We are commanded to pursue holiness. We are commanded to strive after being holy just as our God is holy. But none of us can ever achieve perfection. What I'm talking about, what I'm talking about is you seeing all of your sin, the whole amount of it, as God sees it, as repulsive, as putrid, as vile, as grotesque, as truly, and, 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 and what I'm talking about is you truly desiring to turn away from your sin, all of your sin with grief and hatred. Not holding on to one little favored sin. You might battle against that sin, and you might fall many times in your battle against that sin, but do you savor that sin? Are you refusing to repent of that sin because you treasure it too much? That's what I'm talking about. Judas would not repent. He kept his little pet sin. He never went to Jesus Christ and said, Lord, I am vile and I love money more than you. Forgive me. If he had done that, Jesus would have forgiven him. He never went to Christ and said, help me to fight against these sins and temptations. Had he done that, Satan would not have found a willing host and Judas Iscariot. If you do that, beloved, if you go to Christ and you repent and say, Lord, I am desperately wicked and these are the sins that plague me and I fall so many times. Forgive me. Help me. If you do that, beloved, Satan would not find a willing host in you. If you truly repent and repent even when you fail, to properly repent, <laughs> beloved, then you can know that Jesus truly does have the whole of you. You can know that he is the one who possesses through the Holy Spirit your very hearts. Only then will we be free from the danger of becoming Judas Iscariot. So let me close with words of encouragement. At least I took 
encouragement from these words. This is from the Puritan John Owen. It's actually on that guide of preparation that I gave you today. John Owen said this, Friends, let us not be afraid of calling ourselves to a strict account. We are dealing with him who is greater than we and knoweth all things. Let us not be afraid to look in the book of our consciences, to look over our neglects, our sinful fallings and miscarriages, and repent. Beloved, we should not be afraid to do this with the Lord. Because if we don't do it, if we are not an open book before the Lord, and if we are not seeking repentance of all of our sin, then what faces us is far, far, far more dreadful than coming to the holy God in repentance. But if we do come to him, beloved, in true repentance, not holding back little sins as our little pet sins, if we come to him, we will have true and total forgiveness. We will have boundless mercy and boundless grace poured out upon us, and we will have victory in and with Jesus Christ over sin, Yes, someday, even that little sin that plagues you and you fight so hard and you feel like in this earthly life you may never be free from it, one day you will be. You will have victory over sin. You will, though you die, have victory over death. And you will, beloved, by true repentance and faith in Christ, have victory over Satan himself.